Hello, this is episode 15 of The Hate Crime Files, a podcast about crimes typically involving violence, motivated by prejudice based on race, religion, sexual orientation, gender, gender identity, or other grounds. I'm your host, Terrence Heath. This podcast covers disturbing events and may not be suitable for everyone. It is not recommended for young children. Listener discretion is advised. I'm back from my holiday hiatus and am ready to start the new year off with a new episode. But before jumping into today's story, I want to share a bit of exciting news about the podcast. At some point over the holidays, this podcast surpassed 1,000 downloads and is very close to surpassing 1,500 downloads. I want to thank everyone who has listened, subscribed, and shared the podcast with friends or family. I look forward to promoting and continuing to grow the podcast in the year ahead. Hey, Wendy, what you listening to? Oh, hey, Beth. I've just become obsessed with true crime. But I am wondering, you know, you being the OG of true crime and everything, if there are any true crime stories out there about people of color or minorities. There are. I'm obsessed with true crime, too. And it's true. Not all serial killers are white dudes. Get out of here. <laughs> really? <laughs> That's right. Not all serial killers are white. Or, get this, even dudes. Stop. And you know what? Fruit Loose Serial Killers of Color is a podcast all about them. That's right. We take deep dives into the lives and crimes of people of color and their victims that the news leaves out because, well, the news is racist. Allegedly. Ever heard of Swift Runner? The Dating Game Killer? The Taco Bell Strangler? Or La Matavejitas? Well, if you want to hear about them and other true crime stories about people of color, women, LGBTQ, and any other minorities, then listen and subscribe to Fruit Loop Serial Killers of Color wherever you get your podcasts. And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy. I'm Beth. We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Mm-hmm. New episodes drop every Thursday. So look alive, guys. It's crazy out there. Jackson Heights is a neighborhood in the northwest portion of New York City's Queens Borough. It's bordered by the Elmhurst to the south, Woodside to the west, northern Astoria to the northwest, and east Elmhurst to the northeast. The area was originally a vast marshland called Train Meadows back in colonial times. But with the urbanization of the city creating a housing shortage and urban sprawl at the turn of the century, it would not remain an unspoiled marshland. In 1909, Edward A. McDougall's Queensboro Corporation bought 325 acres of that marshland and christened it Jackson Heights, after John C. Jackson, a descendant of one of the original Queens families. 
the addition of the term Heights to the name echoed the prestige of the neighborhood of Brooklyn Heights and indicated that Jackson Heights was meant to be an exclusive neighborhood. It was intended to be a neighborhood for middle to upper middle income families to escape overcrowding in Manhattan. The community became known for its garden apartment buildings constructed around private parks. Those apartment buildings were limited to white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, excluding blacks, Jews, and even Greeks and Italians. The neighborhood would lose its exclusivity in time as inevitable demographic shifts brought changes Starting in the 1930s, artists from Manhattan's theater district, many of whom were gay, moved into the neighborhood and formed the beginnings of the second largest LGBTQ community in New York outside of Manhattan. Jews were allowed to move in by the 1940s, and in the 1950s, middle-class business people from Columbia escaping the violence and repression in Latin America, brought their families to the neighborhood. With the development of Long Island in the 1960s, white middle-class families began moving further out into the suburbs. At the same time, the neighborhood saw an influx of professionals from Latin America and the Indian subcontinent. The 1965 Immigration Reform Act allowed them to arrange the immigration of their families. White resistance to African-American families, however, continued late into the decade. Today, with its population of over 113,000 people, Jackson Heights is said to be the most culturally diverse neighborhood in the U.S., over half, 56.5% of residents are Hispanic, 22% are Asian, 17.2% are white, 2% are black, and other ethnicities make up about 2.3%. The local elementary school, PS69, is said to have the most diverse student body in the country, with approximately 84 different languages spoken at home. Locals speak some 167 languages. Culturally diverse restaurants, stores, and architecture abound. The local library has books in English, Spanish, Chinese, Korean, Russian, Bengali, Hindi, and Portuguese. Today, the neighborhood is also home to a large, mostly Latino, LGBT community, which has transformed the area into a destination spot that rivals Chelsea and the village. It's also become home to LGBTQ families seeking good schools, affordable rents, an easy commute, and a vibrant community in a kid-friendly and LGBT-friendly environment. Jackson Heights wasn't always as safe or welcoming to LGBT people as it is today. Two hate-motivated murders 11 years apart galvanized the LGBT activists in the neighborhood and sparked actions that made it the welcoming community it is today.
It began with the murder of Julio Rivera in the summer of 1990. At about 3.30 a.m. on August 15, 1990, 29-year-old Julio Rivera was on his way home from visiting a friend in Rigo Park in Queens. The youngest of six children in a Puerto Rican family, Rivera was raised in the Bronx by a sickly mother and a father who worked as a baker and was rarely home. He dropped out of school in the seventh grade and moved to Manhattan as a teenager. Described by a friend as an Adonis-like figure, he found that wealthy older men desired him for sex and companionship. A succession of such men introduced him to the theater, fine foods and wines, and designer clothes, as well as cocaine and the club scene. Describing her brother, Rivera's sister Josie said he had a soft spot for beggars and was prone to extravagant gestures. She recalled that on the day of her wedding, Rivera filled her apartment with daisies. Ms. Rivera also said he was never really a happy person. She said her brother had never recovered from his mother's death. She died in his arms in a taxi on the way to the hospital, or from the way his uncles and aunts disapproved of his sexuality, or the stigma of being from the South Bronx. I don't think Julio ever liked himself, Ms. Rivera said. Very smart, very sweet. Friends said he developed a strong, outgoing, macho facade that masked deep insecurities. Rivera had lived in Columbia Heights for 10 years and worked as a bartender. In 1986, he met Brazilian cook Frank Venturini, who worked as a private chef for clients in the Hamptons and Manhattan. They lived a tranquil life together for a period. Venturini cooked extravagant meals, and Rivera painted abstract watercolors. We were from the same metier, Venturini said, and the relationship progressed very quickly. He moved in with me, and for three and a half years we lived together like a marriage. I was father, mother, brother, everything to him. The only time he had a stable life was with me. Then there came a time when Rivera would disappear, going out and not coming home for days. There were two Julios, Venturini said. One got money for drugs from other men, seemed very strong and self-confident, had a bad temper because of the cocaine. Ted Rivera would go to visit Julio at the home he shared with Venturini. I'd never seen him so happy, he said, and I was glad he'd gotten away from the Manhattan nightlife with AIDS and all the other dangers, and he said he was happy to be away from Manhattan in a safe, stable place where he could calm down. He also remembered Julio saying there was danger in Jackson Heights. 
He said there were these gangs on the street at night, and that some of his friends had been jumped and beaten. He said the gangs were called skinheads. Even in the early 90s, vestiges of the punk rock era of the late 70s still flourished in Manhattan's East Village and parts of Queens and Brooklyn. Some were harmless, apolitical young people drawn to the tough group identity. They shaved their heads and slam danced to hardcore rock music. Others weren't so harmless. They appeared the same as the others, shaved heads and combat boots and slam danced like the rest, but they also beat up people who belonged to minority groups they didn't like, especially blacks, gays, and lesbians. As he was on his way home in the early hours of July 2nd, 1990, around 3 a.m., Rivera would have a fatal meeting with three members of one of those skinhead gangs. Also known as the Doc Martin Stompers, the gang was a loosely organized group of punks from Rigo Park, Jackson Heights, and Elmhurst. Police said members of DMS were involved in the stabbing death of another young punk on St. Mark's Place. Police records show the gang had a long history of fighting, assault, robbery, and murder, but no recurring patterns of gay bashing or bias crimes. One law enforcement source said, They're basically neighborhood shitheads who hang out in the street, pick fights, and make regular pilgrimages to East Village. Danny Doyle, 21, was the son of a retired New York City police detective. He grew up an only son with the undivided attention of his loving parents and two doting sisters. He went to a Roman Catholic high school in Queens before transferring to the private garden school from which he graduated with honors in 1989. He was an ordinary teenage guy. He could be really nice or a real jerk just like any of us, said Jude Avellino who was close to Mr. Doyle at the garden school. I've seen him get mad, but I've never seen him close to homicidal. Others described Doyle as a quiet boy who loved rock music and basketball and aspired to become a lawyer. After high school, Doyle lived at home and attended New York University, but transferred to Union College in Schenectady for his sophomore year, seeking a more collegiate experience. Doyle began spending time with the members of DMS when he returned home from Union College during the summer. Estat BC, 19, attended Newton High School for two years without earning a single credit and ultimately dropped out. Known as Ed and Double O, his head was shaved and tattooed with the letters DMS, the initials of the Doc Martin skinheads. Police said he was the toughest of the three, 
a wild kid, and a serious skinhead. He had seen bashings before, but not to the extreme of murder. Though he was the youngest of the three, he was showing Eric Brown and Doyle the ways of DMS. Eric Brown, 21. A dropout Stuyvesant High School student and former student of the Art Student League in Manhattan was a part of the street gang known as the Doc Martin or DMS skinheads. The name caused the group, which included black, Asian, and Hispanic members, to be confused with neo-Nazi skinheads and was changed to stand for drugs, money, and sex. Eric is a great dude, said one friend of Eric Brown. I couldn't believe he was involved in something like this. Jackson Heights is a big gang scene. Guys get caught up in it, and the society affects them, God knows. Brown's friends could only watch as gang members Estat B.C. and Daniel Doyle drew him into the DMS circle. He adopted their macho facade and took part in bullying and beating others. First, Rivera encountered Brown as he walked through Jackson Heights. The three had decided Brown would approach Rivera because his long hair made him less threatening than the other two whose heads were shaved. Brown lured Rivera into the school playground behind PS69 on 37th Avenue, where the attack happened. B.C. hit Rivera in the head with a bottle, causing him to double over. He then took out a hammer and began attacking Rivera with it. Doyle punched Rivera in the face, kicked him in the stomach, and stabbed him, delivering what would prove to be the fatal wound. Rivera was hit 14 times with the claw end of the hammer and stabbed in the back. A witness reported that two of the three men who fled the schoolyard had their heads shaved in the manner of neo-Nazi skinheads. Alan Sack, a friend of Rivera's, arrived on the scene to find Rivera lying in a pool of blood. Rivera was taken to Elmhurst Hospital, where he died a few hours later. Police found traces of cocaine in Rivera's blood. As a result, they initially believed that the murder was drug-related, even though it occurred in a place where attacks on gays had happened before. According to gays, in the area, similar attacks had been going on there for 15 years. Rivera's friends and family members had never believed that he was killed trying to buy drugs. He would never buy on the street, said his sister Josie Rivera. He had connections and could get anything he wanted by phone. Rivera's murder galvanized Jackson Heights gay community as organizations responded with protests and demonstrations. Queer Nation handed out flyers in Jackson Heights, and 350 people joined in a candlelight march to the playground where Rivera was slain. Ken Kidd of Queer Nation was there with his group in 1990 
and back for the vigil. When we read about Julio being hit with the claw end of a hammer and then stabbed to death, it got people riled up, he said. We'd had enough. Our friends were dropping at an alarming rate from AIDS. Matt Foreman was the head of the anti-violence project, and he brought it to public attention. Another demonstration in October marched from Jackson Heights to Gracie Mansion. New York City Mayor David Dinkins hadn't said a word about Rivera's murder, which was still not classified as a hate crime. Three days later, Dinkins' office announced a $10,000 reward for information about the murder. It was Dinkins' first public mention of the case. The New York City Gay and Lesbian Anti-Violence Project teamed up with Queer Nation to offer a $3,500 reward for information. New gay organizations formed in the wake of Rivera's murder. Ed Cederbaum, a Queens gay activist, co-founded Queens Lesbians and Gays United in 1991. Queens activists launched the Julio Rivera Anti-Violence Coalition. The murder went unsolved for four months, while police refused to classify it as a bias-related crime. That would begin to change with the arrests of Doyle, Brown, and B.C. Police arrested Doyle and Brown on November 12th and B.C. on November 19th on second-degree murder and weapons charges. Police also found the hammer used in the attack. A witness who saw the three leaving the playground picked Doyle out of a lineup. The Queen's District Attorney announced that he would treat the case as a bias-related incident. On December 17th, the Police Department's Bias Review Panel classified the murder as a bias-related crime. After the arrest, police began closing in on a motive. They talked to young people in Jackson Heights who said that the three disliked gay people and that Doyle, in particular, hated gays. One DMS subject said Doyle told him something to the effect that they had really beaten up that fag down at the schoolyard that B.C. had hit him with a bottle, and Eric Brown hit him with something like a wrench that he'd stuck in him. It was like sticking a watermelon in. It went in so easy. Doyle said he instigated the attack and was initially charged with second-degree murder, but he was allowed to plead to the lesser charge of manslaughter in exchange for testifying against B.C. and Brown. On August 5, 1991, Doyle pleaded guilty to manslaughter and was sentenced to eight and one-third to 25 years in prison. Doyle had initially told police that he was on his way home after buying beer when he came upon Brown and B.C. already struggling with Rivera. At trial, he testified that on the night of the attack, he, Brown, and B.C. were drinking heavily at a party at his house. 
Doyle said he told Brown that he would like to beat some people up, stretch some people out. B.C. overheard the conversation and wanted to join them. They went out with a claw hammer, a wrench, and a beer bottle, looking to assault a drug dealer, a drug addict, or a homo out cruising. They went to the schoolyard because it was a place where gay men often went to cruise. I stabbed him in the back, causing his death, said Doyle, as he stood manacled by the hands and feet in front of Justice Ralph Sherman in State Supreme Court in Kew Gardens. Justice Sherman asked, Was this a preconceived plan? Doyle answered, Yes. Doyle then calmly said, We stabbed him and killed him. I killed him because he was gay. Defense attorneys claimed that Doyle changed his story after reaching a plea agreement with the prosecution to avoid a potential 25-year sentence. Lawyers for Brown and B.C. argued that their clients were not guilty and charged that Doyle and the prosecution were conspiring to build a case against them. B.C.'s lawyer, Barry Jean Rhodes, called it odd and outrageous that the prosecution would make such a deal with the murderer in an effort to strengthen the case against two people who are clearly not murderers. The medical examiner, he said, found that the stab wound Mr. Doyle inflicted was the, quote, sole cause of death. During the trial, both defense attorneys alluded to Rivera's active sex life, implying that as a promiscuous gay man, he deserved what he got. Rhodes asked Alan Sachs what precautions he'd taken to avoid Rivera's blood so that he could elicit the word AIDS in response. An eyewitness who saw Brown and B.C. fleeing the scene of the crime was asked, weren't you out cruising that night? Even during jury selection, the defense attorneys attempted to appeal to jurors' homophobia by asking them if they'd ever heard of Dykes on Bikes, a lesbian social group that had nothing to do with the case. After testimony ended, the defense argued that there was insufficient evidence to send the case to the jury. The judge rejected the defense motion and refused to dismiss the second-degree murder charges. However, he instructed the jury that they could also consider the charges of manslaughter and criminally negligent homicide. What motivated them was hate, and what they sought was death, and they got it. The prosecutor, Daniel McCarthy, told the packed courtroom. Holding up the knife and hammer used in the attack on Rivera, McCarthy said that Brown and B.C. acted in concert with Doyle, who admitted to stabbing Rivera by luring him into the fatal encounter and attacking him with the hammer, wrench, and beer bottle. B.C. and Brown were convicted of helping Doyle lure Rivera to the schoolyard where the three of them attacked him. They were both sentenced to 25 years to life. At that time, anti-gay murders were rarely prosecuted. 
the few that were typically ended in acquittals or very light sentences. Suddenly, a district attorney, a judge, and a jury had departed from the justice system's usual treatment of gay bashing as a crime on par with jaywalking. Brown and B.C.'s friends, families, and attorneys were outraged. Brown's attorney, Harold Harrison, declared that the jury ended up carrying out the desires of the gay rights activists. Harrison argued that the trial had been unfair because defense attorneys were not allowed to exclude gays and lesbians from the jury. Rhodes, B.C.'s attorney, informed a reporter that B.C. is normal, he likes girls, and placed the ultimate responsibility for the tragedy on gay and lesbian activists whom he called a lynch mob. B.C.'s aunt, Aphrodita Suljovic, shouted homophobic slurs outside the courtroom as Rivera's friends and media filed out. It's about time we started picking on them. They have privileges, but we're real people, people that didn't lose any chromosomes. Because Brown wants to keep his job, you know who's going to be voting for him, pretty in pink. Brown and B.C.'s friends taunted, Put your lipstick on, honey, as Rivera's ex-lover walked by in tears. None seemed to grasp that open expressions of disdain for gay people might hurt the defendant's case. In February 1995, an appellate court overturned B.C. and Brown's convictions because the trial judge made fundamental procedural errors that deprived the defendants of their rights. The appellate panel called for a new trial, but added that the evidence presented at trial was sufficient to establish guilt. On May 13, 1996, Brown pleaded guilty to a lesser charge of first-degree manslaughter with a sentence of 5 to 15 years. As part of his appeal, Brown agreed to testify against B.C. At an appearance in court, Brown said that he, Doyle, and B.C. had planned to attack a gay man in the schoolyard. For his part of the plan, Brown said he engaged Rivera in conversation and lured him into the ambush by Doyle and B.C. Brown said that he ran away when the attack began. On May 14, 1996, B.C. failed to appear for a court hearing, and the judge revoked his $350,000 bail. B.C. remained a fugitive for six years. He was rumored to be in Europe on tour with the New York hardcore band Madball. B.C. became one of New York City's most wanted fugitives. The New York Gay and Lesbian Anti-Violence Project offered a $10,000 reward for information leading to his arrest. On February 10, 1997, the New York State Parole Board denied Brown's request for an early release from prison. On learning of the parole denial, Peg Rivera, Mr. Rivera's sister-in-law, said, 
We were pleased that he was denied for another two years. We hope he is at least made to serve the full 15. Christine Quinn, executive director of the New York City Gay and Lesbian Anti-Violence Project, said, This is a victory because it keeps a dangerous homophobe in jail. But added, No one can be happy until Asat Bisi is in jail. Bisi died in Tijuana, Mexico, on April 2, 2006, in what appeared to be a drug-related murder. He was shot in the shoulder and the head. He was initially identified by a double eagle tattoo he'd attempted to have removed. Fingerprints later confirmed his identity. Though few outside of the neighborhood took notice, Rivera's murder became to Jackson Heights' gay community what the death of Yusef Hawkins was to the African-American community. It inspired the documentary film Julio of Jackson Heights, directed by Richard Spuntoff, featuring interviews from Rivera's family and friends. He also has footage from years of the borough's Pride Parade, which began after Rivera's death. The corner of 78th and 37th Avenue, where the attack occurred, was named Julio Rivera Corner. Three years after Rivera's murder, Jackson Heights Councilman Danny Drom founded the Queen's Pride Parade in Jackson Heights and the Lesbian and Gay Democratic Club of Queens the following year. It's now the second largest parade in the city. On the 25th anniversary of Rivera's murder, Drom led a vigil to the steps of Julio Rivera Corner, where the attack took place. Julio's case was the beginning of the change that we saw in the borough of Queens, Drom said. If it wasn't for Julio, Drom said, the Queens LGBT movement would not have gotten as far as it has gotten. Julio did not die in vain. He changed people's lives. In 1990, the murder of Julio Rivera by three anti-gay skinheads shook the gay community in New York City's Jackson Heights neighborhood. The death galvanized the gay community, which rallied to demand justice for Rivera. Eleven years later, another murder would shock the community. At the age of 16, Edgar Garzon left his family behind in Colombia and moved to the U.S. to become a citizen and build a life for himself in New York City. At 35, he was a dancer and making his living as a set designer for local Latino theater groups. He was a member of the Columbia Gay and Lesbian Association and designed gay pride parade floats for the group. On August 15, 2001, Garzon was out drinking with friends. He 
He left Friend's Tavern on Roosevelt in Jackson Heights shortly before 4 a.m. With him was his friend Raoul Duquesne. The two were headed home when they reached 76th Street, where Garzon stopped to urinate. Duquesne says he was with Garzon when a red car first approached them. The car pulled up alongside Garzon, and he exchanged words with someone inside. Duquesne did not hear the conversation, and said that Garzon told him someone in the vehicle had invited him to a party, but he declined. Duquesne and Garzon saw the car a second time, and Garzon expressed concern. Afterward, the two parted ways, with Garzon headed down 77th Street alone. The next time Duquesne saw the red car was when he came rushing back to 77th Street after hearing a loud noise. Duquesne turned the corner to see two men getting back into the car very quickly. He found Garzon lying on the ground and called 911. A bank surveillance camera captured a second encounter between Garzon and the people in the red car. The video caught the vehicle, but not the men inside. It showed Garzon looking intently into the car. After Garzon turned and went on his way, someone exited the car and went after him out of camera range. The suspect was observed emerging from the car, striking Garzon in the head and stealing his wallet while another suspect waited in the car. Frank Byrne, a resident of 77th Street, said he was awakened by three loud whacks that morning. He looked out of his window to see a man lying on the sidewalk, a second man standing over him and a third man moving back towards the red car. Sergeant Eileen M. Walter was the first police officer to respond to the 911 call. She arrived on the scene to find Garzon lying in a pool of blood, barely conscious and constantly moaning. Police believed he was attacked with a blunt object like a hammer, a baseball bat, or a lead pipe. Emergency medical technician Stephen Carter said that Garzon's head injuries were so severe that he and his partner could not stop the bleeding. They saw what appeared to be brain matter on Garzon's face. Garzon was taken to Elmhurst Hospital Center where he remained in a coma until he died on September 4, 2001. An autopsy showed that Garzon had suffered severe skull fractures and a brain hemorrhage. On September 6, 2001, a candlelight vigil was held in Garzon's honor at Roosevelt Avenue and 80th Street. The viciousness of the attack does point to a hate crime, said State Senator Tom Duane. The perpetrators beat him far beyond the need to rob him. It really shouts bias crime, added Councilwoman Christine Quinn. In response to Garzon's death, gay activists raised nearly 3000 in reward money. Duane and Quinn each made a $500 contribution to the award being offered 
for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the killers. The reward fund grew to $15,000. Police worked to discover whether the incident was an anti-gay attack, but community gay rights activists were already convinced that it was. The growing LGBT population in Jackson Heights saw the murder as a wake-up call. Many said it reminded them of the 1990 death of Julio Rivera, who was killed just one block from the scene of Garzon's attack. Unwilling to let their son's death be forgotten, Garzon's parents, Armando and Lenore Garzon, left their country and moved into Garzon's Queen's apartment. However, the terrorist attacks on September 11th would soon overshadow Garzon's murder. The case would go unsolved until 2003, when Christopher Ricalde came forward. Ricalde initially said that his knowledge of the murder was only second-hand, but he eventually identified John McGee as Garzon's attacker. On the night of the attack, Ricalde, 14, was a passenger in the red car with McGee as the driver. They'd spent the night smoking marijuana and driving around the neighborhood with a third man named Yaya. At the time of the assault, McGee and Ricalde were living with Ricalde's father. One week after the attack on Garzon, they saw a news report of the crime, and Ricalde said that McGee suggested he might have to leave the city. In December 2001, McGee fled to London, where his wife and child were living. At some point before he left for London, officials said McGee bragged about the killing to his friends. Police located him in London in 2004, but didn't believe they had enough evidence to extradite him. Scotland Yard agreed to keep him under surveillance. When McGee applied for British citizenship in 2006, he lied about previous convictions on his application. As a result, he was removed from the country. Having been told by British authorities what flight McGee would be on, New York police met him at John F. Kennedy International Airport. On June 28, 2006, police arrested McGee and charged him with one count of second-degree murder, one count of first-degree manslaughter, and one count of attempted robbery in Garzon's death. While in police custody, McGee made statements that placed him in New York at the time of Garzon's murder. McGee went to trial on July 12, 2007. District Attorney Karen Ross told jurors in her opening statement that Garzon was attacked because he, quote, made the mistake of hitting on McGee. I will prove to you that this defendant did this because Mr. Garzon was a gay man and he made the mistake of hitting on this defendant, Ross said. She also told jurors they would hear from an eyewitness to the attack, Recalde, who was a passenger in the car and who had known McGee for eight years. McGee's defense attorney countered that no fingerprints tied McGee to the crime and police had found no weapon despite assertions that one was used in the attack on Garzon. 
The defense also attacked inconsistencies in the prosecution's case and brought up Ricalde's criminal background, which included breaking into a car and his membership in two gangs, the Bloods and the Latin Kings. Ricalde testified that McGee attacked Garzon on August 15, 2001. He said he saw McGee knock Garzon down with one punch and then punch him repeatedly, causing Garzon's head to slam into the ground. There were some differences between Ricalde's testimony and that of other witnesses and the prosecution's opening statement. Ricalde testified that McGee assaulted Garzon with his bare hands, while police believed Garzon was attacked with a blunt object. Ross said McGee attacked Garzon for hitting on him. Ricalde testified that Garzon was rebuffed twice and was attacked when he approached a third time when McGee left the car to urinate. According to Ricalde, the guy was reaching for something. Ricalde said the attack happened on 76th Street while every other witness placed the incident on 77th Street. Ricalde also said that a second man, presumably Garzon's friend Raul Duquez, was nearby at the time of the attack. However, Duquez testified that he was not present for the attack and arrived on the scene after Garzon was already on the ground. Ricalde said he and McGee spent the night smoking marijuana and riding around the neighborhood with a third man named Yaya, and that Yaya exited the car and urged McGee to stop attacking Garzon. Another witness, however, only saw three men, Garzon and the two men who drove off in the red car. Garzon's mother, Leonore, took the stand and told jurors that Garzon was beaten so severely that he looked like a monster when she saw him at the hospital after the attack. I did not recognize my son, she told jurors. On July 24, 2007, the judge in McGee's murder trial declared a mistrial after a juror called in sick two days in a row, causing the jury to suspend deliberations for four days. On September 11th, a Queen's jury quickly found McGee guilty of second-degree murder. On October 17, 2008, McGee was sentenced to 22 years to life for Garzant's murder. At the time of sentencing, McGee still denied committing the crime. Speaking on behalf of Garzant's parents from his old Jackson House apartment where they now lived, Neil Macias, a brother-in-law, thanked the 115th Precinct especially Detective Daniel Corey, for their vigilance in pursuing the case. At least knowing that this guy is in prison right now and he's going to be punished for what he did, it's a kind of relief for the family, he said. The Hate Crime Files is researched, written, produced, and hosted by Terrence Heath. That's me. Thanks for listening. And to all my listeners and subscribers, thanks for your support. I'll be back with another episode on the first of the month. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to support it, please subscribe. Tell your friends and family about it and consider leaving a positive review at Apple.
Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, be careful out there and be good to each other.